everything about me was gay. And as I read God's word, I realized that that's not who I am. It's how I am. I don't know any other sin issue that we have so closely linked with personhood. How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour, and today we are continuing the topic of responding to homosexuality from a biblical context. Dr. Christopher Yuan joins us in the studio today, and he is an author, speaker, and Bible teacher. He has co-authored with his mom their memoir, which is now in seven languages. It's called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. He is also the author of Giving a Voice to the Voiceless, and his new book, which he and Michael talk about in this episode, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships, Shaped by God's Grand Story, will be released this November, actually November 20th. Also in this episode, Michael and Christopher mention a live stream that they did several years ago called In God's Image. If you want to hear more from Christopher and more on this topic, you can go to our website, michaelincontext.com, click on resources in the menu, and you'll see a drop down that says In God's Image. And that is with, of course, Michael. Christopher Yuan, David Fowler, and Matt Moore. And these men have an extensive conversation on this very topic, homosexuality from a biblical context. Finally, just wanted to give you a heads up. Next week, we are airing our second Ask Dr. E. I know a lot of you have called in. We're getting to your questions. We are loving this process. So keep calling us with your questions and check out that episode. But now let's join Michael and Dr. Yuan in the studio. Welcome again to the broadcast. We are delighted today to have my friend, uh, Dr. Christopher Yuan, back on the podcast. Christopher, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Dr. Yuan. You've got a new work coming out, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, Mm -hmm. and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. Let's start the program, uh, Christopher, just by you know, some folks may not know your story. They may not have heard you before. Give us just a a, a little bit of your story of uh, sure. how you came to Christ, and uh, and then we'll and then we'll transition into your new work. Sure. Well, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I wrestled with same sex attractions from a young age. I came out I came out when I was in my early twenties, while I was living in Louisville, Kentucky, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. Um, my parents and I were from Chicago. I was born in Chicago, and um, I I came out first to my friends, my classmates in dental school. And then I went home after my first year and I broke the news to my parents. And remember, they weren't Christian, but it's 
it's just so amazing how God can use crises to bring us to our knees. So it was that, uh, that event that was kind of like a straw that broke the camel's back. And God used that to bring my mother to faith first. And then a few months after that, my father, well, I wanted nothing to do with their newfound religion. And I went in the opposite direction while in dental school, I was just doing what most 20-year-olds would do, unbelieving 20-year-olds would do. And that was party, have fun. I was going out to gay clubs. I unfortunately got involved in drugs and started selling drugs. Well, I tried to balance both. And eventually, in my senior year of dental school, just months before I was to get my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So I moved then to Atlanta. I kept doing what I knew how to do best at that time, which was sell drugs. I became a supplier. And my parents this whole time had no clue that I was doing drugs or even selling drugs. But, you know, they knew my biggest need was know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they tried to reach out to me, love of Christ. I wanted nothing to do with it. They came to visit me one time while I was in Atlanta, told them to get out. My, my father gave me his first Bible. I threw it in the trash can. I mean, just to show how much I really despised Christianity, the Bible. Well, my parents knew, especially after that visit, that I was just hopeless. And they prayed. They just prayed for a miracle. My mom prayed, God, do whatever it takes. She fasted um, every Monday for seven years. God even led her to fast um, for 39 days. And she just prayed for a miracle. And that miracle came with a bang on my door. I was I found on my doorstep 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. So I found myself in jail, and that was the rock bottom. God got definitely got my attention, but it wasn't like a day and night conversion. It really took some time. I found a Bible in the trash can. I had to still hit rock bottom. I got the news that I was HIV positive, and, and it was kind of through, again, another crisis. And a series of crises that God really got my attention. I found a Bible in the trash can, of all things, began reading it. And it really, you know, I thought it was a book. Well, as we know, this is not a book. It's God's God's word. It is living and breathing, and uh, it is inspired. It is his breath. And so I I began reading it, and, and the the biggest thing that convicted me was I had put my identity in my wrong in the wrong thing. Um, you know, when I said I am gay, that's not equivalent to, um, you know, I think recently someone was trying to compare I am gay to I am American. It's not the same thing. I am American is nothing, no, no behavior associated with being American and very specifically no sinful behavior associated with being American. I am gay is who I am. It's my identity. Um, it's as, as Matthew Vines, a gay Christian, gay affirming Christian will say, it's the core of my being. If, if, even if someone said being American is the core of my being and they say they're a Christian, I would say that's wrong. In the same way, I built my whole personhood around being gay. All my friends were gay. I went to a gay. Kroger. I went to a gay gym. I lived in a apartment complex that was 95% gay. Everything about me was gay. And as I read God's word, I realized that that's not who I am. It's how I am, but not who I am. And that was really foundational. I think helpful for us Christians that we often start with 
the sinful behavior, which it is. I'm not going, I'm not trying to say it isn't, but when we start there with an unbeliever who has the wrong identity, their, their ontology is wrong. We have to backtrack a few steps, several steps to address that first before they can separate who they are with how they are, separate who they are from their sexuality. And so that was really, really core for me. And um, so once I learned that's not who I am, well, I needed to learn who am I and just through God's word. And it's, you know, over and over in the New Testament where the biblical writers are talking about we're in Christ, we're saved in Christ, we're, you know, we're justified in, over and over in Christ, in Christ, through Christ. And that's what the theologians, early theologians and, and reformers called union with Christ. That's a key concept that, that yeah, I'm not going to say it's an easy concept to understand, but it's a core concept of being a follower of Christ. Um, so after recognizing that, and it took time, uh, God helped me to, to realize that my, the way I was living was not aligned with God's word. And, and not only I surrendered, uh, you know, who I was, but surrendered my past, my desires, my simple thoughts and, um, was called into ministry. And, um, my parents, I asked them to mail me an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of, which is Moody. Um, I applied while I was in prison, which is really funny and, uh, actually got accepted. My, I always joke my, I mean, it's true. My references were a prison chaplain, a prison guard and another prison inmate. <laughs> so I was accepted, uh, started the very next month. And, um, yeah. And so I went to Moody, went on to get my master's in exegesis and finally miraculously, uh, doctorate of ministry and just been in. Uh, joyful ministry with my parents um, had had the real big honor of writing a book with my mother and uh, very excited about the next book, um, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. You probably at some point should write at least an article or an op-ed or something about, you know, trash can theology, you know, yes. the Bible goes in the trash, you pick one out of the trash, you know, <laughs> our, our lives, we're all out of the trash, we're all we're all throwaway people except Christ rescue. I mean, come on, there, there's a, there's something here. Yeah, there, there is, there is. <laughs> and at a prison trash can. A prison trash can, yeah. And the funny thing is when I picked up that Bible from the trash can, I didn't make that connection of how I threw the Bible in the trash can uh, before. I, it wasn't until I was writing the book, I was like, wait a sec, I threw a Bible in the trash, my dad's first Bible, and um, God has really sent the humor. He does, and we're grateful for that. Let, let me ask a couple of questions on your opening comments, Christopher. W when did the moniker, my identity is fill in the blank, hmm. start taking over? And it's not just sexuality. We've got right. all kinds of identities. Yeah. Uh, and if we go back, obviously, first century, or if we go back to, you know, God's creation of man in his image, you and mm -hmm. I did a, a series of live streaming and podcast and video several years ago. And that was, that was our chosen title was, you mm. know, it's, it's, your identity is in God's image, right? It's not, it's not some other, you know, we, we can call it whatever, you know, we want to call it language is, is interesting, but where did this sort of take over the nomenclature that it, uh, that's my identity. That's who I am. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because if you trace back, you know, I mean, just this concept of sexual identity, if, and again, the reason why, I'm, I'm focusing on the importance of this is I think there's among evangelicals even today who 
who would have no issue with saying I'm a gay Christian or even though even justify and say I'm a gay celibate Christian, which, by the way, I think it's kind of funny that if you have to have a modifier for a modifier, then why even use that modifier? You know, if you say gay, well, that's not enough. That's confusing. So I have to say I'm a gay celibate. Well, it, you know, I feel like that's, that's like sometimes, you know, uh, my, my parents, they're nearing 80. And fortunately, they're not taking medications. But many of their friends, they take one medication. Then that causes side effects. So they, so they take another medication and that can cause other side effects. So they, you know, so you well, maybe, you know, that maybe that medication in the first place isn't, you know, as ideal and there needs to be another one. But when you are constantly trying to cover and modify and, you know, modify noun, maybe that noun isn't the ideal situation. So people, there are Christians who actually think this concept of sexual identity and even terminology that, that definitely has a direct correlation to this terminology is okay. So when we look back in time, everything comes goes back in history. You know, nothing's really repeated. And and we we reap the fruit, or I would say rotten fruit, of some of this bad, bad um, kind of philosophical concepts or worldviews. So going back, you know, the term homosexual, heterosexual uh, are not terms that we find uh, in scripture, and they weren't words uh, until recently, the mid-1800s, to describe um, it wasn't just to describe the the experience of having same-sex attractions, but it really developed like a new category of personhood. It's a it's a gay person, it's a heterosexual person, a homosexual person, as if that's a core aspect of who we are. And I would argue it's a, it it can be a significant aspect of our experience, but I don't believe our experience, what we feel, what we think, what we desire, should comprise who we are. But uh, it came out of really thinkers like and and like Freud, um, who have a very distorted understanding of who we are as people. That's completely godless, um, not grounded in scripture. That we are essentially people created with no purpose uh, by accident, and we have to create our own purpose and meaning and identity. And and it's really, I mean, in the mid 1800s, we have the Romantic period, which is uh, again, a celebration of passion and desire, which really, I mean, if we call it that, that's so reflective of our of our time now. But also these secular worldviews like existentialism, you have no meaning. So in a sense, you have to live and create your own meaning. Uh, we're, we're really unfortunately reaping the negative consequences of all those uh, understandings today, and which is really solidified to what we understand today is this is what we call a sexual identity. This is why people say, you know, I am gay means this is who I am. Interestingly, I saw, and I'm sure you track these uh, articles as well, and sometimes they're a little bit of a pop culture uh, survey, so we don't really know, but the increasing percentage of uh, middle schoolers questioning their gender. Yeah. Yep. And, and it's, I think it's just going to become more and more, uh, where, and, and I, see, I don't know if it's, um, you know, that we have more transgender kids. I, I think that there, there was maybe an underlying current of people wrestling with that. But I think why there's a, a bigger increase is what does a three year old know? <laughs> you know, what does a four year old, I mean, what does a nine year old really know? Nine children are put in the hands of parents so parents can shape and mold them to this this really 
incipient lie that uh, we are just to give, make kids a blank slate and let them decide for themselves is, is really, uh, I mean, it's, it's such a distortion of parenthood and, uh, and the parent's responsibility uh, to shape and mold and direct their child. When you travel and speak, um, are, are you seeing certain uh, trends and uh, themes that come up again and again when, when people ask you questions or challenge you? You know, I mean, I, I, I certainly do. I probably get that more with my online interaction, which is one reason why I don't really put as much uh, weight into the online interaction. But when I speak, I speak at churches that kind of get it already. Um, and I don't do a lot of t- uh, speaking on in secular context. If I did, I definitely would get a lot more of that. But um, our goal as a ministry, and, and again, this is you know with my parents, our goal is to equip the the body of Christ, the local church, and um, we don't do as much outreach. Not to say that uh, we we think that's important. Our, our goal is not that we would go out, uh, that is myself and my parents, but our goal is to equip the local church to know how to reach their community as individuals, not as a whole ministry uh, or as a whole church. Like, I, I don't think that that would, is in our climate today, to come out as, you know, First Baptist, we're going to come and save, you know, the gays in whatever, and, you know, Texas or whatever, that, that's not going to go well. However, if you have a gay neighbor and as individuals, a more grassroots level, as a matter of fact, I think that's, that's much more effective as evangelism. You know, I mean, I think it's evangelism is, is really one-on-one. Uh, that's the example that we get. And uh, I mean, of course, not to say that, you know, Paul definitely preached to the crowd and especially when it gets to these really controversial topics. And in light of the way that our culture works now, it's more of the mob mentality. I think we need to get back to on this topic and reaching this community, more the one-on-one personal relations um, that develop over time to be able to uh, live the gospel first before you preach the gospel. How do you help the believer who loves Christ? They, They aren't mad at a person who's struggling with LGBTQAI or whatever, but they're tremulous to have this conversation. Yeah. Um, they're out of their comfort zone. And frankly, they fear uh, legitimately, they fear a backlash, they fear vitriol. Um, and certainly we don't always approach things the right way. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always feel like Christians are on their back heels. We are. always saying something the wrong way. And I didn't mean that. And, and the language changes and yeah. we're in trouble. So the, the, the result is we do nothing. Right. And then the Christian is vilified and the Christian mm-hmm. is now the bigot. Yeah. The Christian is now the enemy. Right. And the Christian could be sued if you don't bake the cake. It yeah. Work. I would maybe actually add another option, which isn't correct either, which is a lot of times people say, well, I'm just going to love. And and I right. sometimes cringe at that. Of course. I mean, that's a very biblical statement to love. Uh, but to just <laughs> love, define that for me, because I think your definition of when you say I'm just going to love might not really line up with, you know, the biblical definition of love, especially Romans 5. God loved us while we were still sinners, while we were powerless, while we were his enemies. I think that beyond those three options, you know, either 
you know, kind of in your face, always argumentative or retreating and not doing anything or just love, which means I'm not going to say anything. Well, I guess that's similar to retreat, but, but it, it's done in a little different way. Uh, there has to be a much more gospel-centered way that really reflects Jesus Christ, who came, John 1, 14, full of grace and full of truth. I think this is why we—I think it's human nature. We, we tend to go to one end or the other. We tend to be either all truth, and, and, and yes, we're speaking truth. This is sin, but then we end there. Like, we don't have any redemptive aspect, or we're really—I I, I, I was at this church the other weekend where the, where the pastor's wife was— you know, joking about her husband. Yeah, I agree. I agree with what you said, just not your tone. <laughs> so sometimes our mm-hmm. tone communicates a lot and we could be speaking truth, but that tone is very um, hurtful and offensive. Uh, or we're just all grace, meaning just don't mention any, any truth. And we just are just very compassionate. And those are both things that we have to do, but together full of grace, full of truth. And I think that the way we do this, especially when you're engaging relationships, for example, like a conversation, um, if, uh, you know, you have people coming to your home and, or maybe a loved one coming into your home and they're maybe they know you're a Christian and they're going to push you on it. A lot of times, well, often Christians are like, well, they just asked me a question and I have to answer it. I have to be on it. But I love the example of Jesus in the gospels, where if you look at the many times that he was asked questions, it's very interesting because he did not always answer their direct question. He gave an answer. Well, sometimes he was silent. He gave an answer, but sometimes that answer was not an answer to their question. It was an answer to another more important question. And Jesus had a way of, of doing that. I mean, he's God. He knows all things. So he did not always answer their question even when he was speaking to the crowds whose heart was not in the right place. He spoke in parables. So he didn't really speak freely as he did with the disciples who, even though they were still knuckleheads, they they had a more teachable heart. Uh, So he spoke plainly with them. And so I think of the same way, we don't have to always answer a question. I don't think this is actually being deceptive. But it's continuing the conversation because I think ultimately our goal isn't to convince someone or to win an argument. I think ultimately our goal is to win a soul and to be on this journey with them to over time share the truths of God and the gospel, not just the truth on this one particular sin. Let's go through some of your uh, new book, and uh, I may run some rabbit trails on you as well, but sure. give, give us the overview of what you're trying to accomplish in holy sexuality in the gospel. Yeah, so holy sexuality really originated from my very first book. Uh, at the very So, you know, this is just a memoir. My mother and I alternating chapters. She told her perspective. I told her, her my perspective. Um, and so it's going back and forth, and they're really kind of quick, fast-paced, just story. Uh, easy to read, but at the end, in chapter 30, I introduce a concept, and I call it holy sexuality. And it is, holy sexuality is essentially, it is chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage, because I found that the paradigm that we were working with when it comes to sexuality, heterosexuality, homosexuality, and bisexuality in the middle, was too, it was not precise enough in that, you know, we say homosexuality is not God's will. 
to act on same-sex attractions. Uh, so therefore, it seems logical to say, so therefore heterosexuality must be. But as I thought about it, I realized that this concept of heterosexuality is so broad to include sin, whether it is a man cheating on his wife, that is still considered heterosexual, but sinful. Uh, maybe a promiscuous unmarried man with uh, several women, that is also heterosexual, but sinful in God's eyes. So my my point is that yes, although marriage is something that God w- is something that God would bless between a man and a woman, and sexual relationship in that in that context, but marriage between a man and a woman is not equivalent to the category of heterosexuality, which is much broader. So I I realized that we needed to be much more specific. I mean, there's no more room for ambiguity in our day. So I created this. Uh, phrase, call it holy sexuality, which means chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. And those are the two paths that God calls us to. There's no other path for us to be on except for those two. So I knew I, knew I needed to flesh that out. And, and what I also saw lacking in many of the books, uh, good books that are out there on homosexuality, is many of them focus upon uh, either the kind of the practical aspect, how do we help a friend who has same-sex attractions, how do we reach out to the gay community, uh, which I think some of them might be more focusing on the grace as opposed to um, uh, being full of grace and full of truth. But then so other good books that focus strictly on the biblical text. So they've done good exegesis, good hermeneutics. But what I think we really need is a more broad-orbed view of sexuality through the lens of theology specifically systematic and biblical theology. So, for example, we're talking about identity. Um, If sexual identity is the wrong concept of personhood, then what is the right one? So I start at the beginning of my book with talking about identity. Then the next chapter is the image of God, because that's we are all created in God's image, Genesis 127. And what does that mean? And And I explain how essential this concept of male and female is not only uh, integral to who we are as image bearers of God, but also even how Jesus ties that in in Mark 10 and Matthew 19 to marriage, that there's this correlation with the image of God and marriage and how that uh, you can't separate uh, this concept. And so therefore any distortion of marriage, whether it be adultery, sex before marriage, same-sex relationships, uh, I, uh, incest is actually just a distortion of the very image of God. And then I get into, you know, of course, it wouldn't it be nice if that was the end of the <laughs> end of the Bible, just Genesis 127, we're in Eden and we're, everything was fine and dandy. Well, unfortunately, Genesis 3 comes along. And uh, so what does that mean? I think many believers and Christians don't fully grasp the extent of the fall uh, that not only it brought death, not only it brought disease and all these natural consequences of the fall, but it brought this very serious moral consequence of the fall, which made us all guilty of Adam's sin, even though we didn't commit it, but we were guilty in Adam. And also that we all now have this imprint of this sin, a distortion of the image of God, not, not lost, the image of God is not lost, but distortion um, of that image as you know, Calvin talked about depravity uh, or a pollution of our nature. You know, Paul talks about our flesh, sarks, which is our sin nature, and how that really kind of 
paint uh, almost every aspect of who we are, not to make us the worst possible aspect of who we are, but it definitely does distort it and and uh, taint it. So I think that's always important to start there because I, I I tell people we can't really understand human sexuality until we first start with theological anthropology, specifically image of God and doctrine of sin. And then I kind of go on there and, and flesh out this concept of holy sexuality and then answer this question that people often ask, are same-sex attractions sinful or not? And I kind of deconstruct the concept of attraction and I use the more biblical concept uh, concepts of desire and temptation um, and discuss that and then have a couple chapters on marriage, a couple chapters on singleness, and then get into some real practical things here on how to love our gay neighbor, um, our relative, and how do we minister well to individuals who are Christian, who have same-sex attraction. Your comment, uh, and we've talked about this before in a, in a prior podcast, and from my, you know, uh, simple approach, and I'm not saying it's the best, uh, I, w- I would always look at Christ's comments in, in Matthew 5, 6, 7. You've heard it said, I say to you. You've heard it said, I say to you. Mm-hmm. And he actually turns up the amplitude on the law. He does. You've heard it said, if you commit adultery, I tell you, if you look at a woman mm-hmm. with adultery in your heart, essentially you've committed adultery. And And when it comes to you know, even a number of our Christian friends who are now aggregating, no, you can be a Christian and you can be gay, you can be a Christian, transgender, you can be a Christian, that's your identity, mm-hmm. all the all the things you already mentioned. You know, how do you broach that conversation, Christopher, without sounding combative or, you know, or, or you know, vitriolic, but just say, wait, let, let's go back to this. If I, as a married man, uh, 38 years to Cindy, yeah. I've been faithful to her. I would be lying if I said there weren't many occasions I looked at a woman with adultery in my heart. Mm-hmm. And so what includes that analogy? What, 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 how does that fail when we think of any sexual attraction outside the confines of, as you've defined it, uh, chastity and singleness or holiness in marriage? Yeah, you, you got exactly right. I mean, just the example that you, that you, that you talked about in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus was no, uh, you know, sexual freedom advocate. He, he was not, he, he's no, you know, liberator from the, our sexual confines. If anything, he was, like you said, he, when he's raising the bar that high, uh, we all have sinful desires, thoughts. Um, and, 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 I, and, I, and I like how you brought that up, Matthew 5, because this is a great segue to a, a point that I brought up in my book, on my, on my chapter on desire, because... People say, well, is our same-sex attraction sinful or not? At what point does it become sinful? And, and, and I decided not to use the word attraction, but use the, the, word, the more biblical term, desire. And as you know, the word desire in Greek, epithumel, is also the same word to be translated as lust. So it's then context that decides what is good desire, what is bad desire, and where I came down to is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, where he was actually connecting the seventh commandment with the tenth commandment, which is coveting and adultery. He's, you know, the action and the desire that he connected that it's, you know, if you just desire that, then you, then, then you're in sin. And it really helped clarify to people, um, that it's not just the action, because sometimes I hear, well, okay, I know that the same sex action is wrong. And, and we can even go back to 
Azusa Pacific just two weeks ago, how they made that mistake. They did not, they weren't heeding Jesus' words in Matthew 5, uh, connecting uh, just the desire with the sin, that if, if you desire something wrong, that that's sin. Because they say, oh, we still believe that marriage is between a man and woman, and therefore sex between is just reserved for a man and woman, but the romantic relationships are okay. And I, I address this in my chapter. I call it, this is a more theological term, it's the telos of love, the end of love. So I, I say desire is teleological. It, desire always has an end. And for us to recognize that, that will help us to know and discern whether that desire that I'm having is good or not. If there's, we can't desire something that has no end. You know, it's always something that we're desiring or even a concept that we're desiring. Right. Yeah. So, um, but, it's, it, but I take it one step further. So it's not just the end, the object or the concept or the action that we're desiring, but it's also the purpose. So for example, if I was a father and I had a daughter and I desired my daughter, well, just because I desired my daughter, I, I need to know more. What, what, what is the purpose of that desire? You know, as telos in Greek also means purpose. So what's that purpose of my desire? If my desire is for me to spend some quality time with my daughter, treat her like a princess and treat her like, you know, to let her know that she's loved by God and by me and by, you know, her parents and to teach her the ways of the Lord, you know, that's that, that's what, those are good desires. So that desire would be good. However, if my desire then would be a sexual desire or maybe abusive desire, uh, that obviously that purpose would be wrong. So by us determining the end, that helps us determine what, whether that desire, that beginning of that desire is good or not. So for example, let's, let's go back to this, uh, what I mentioned earlier about the romantic desire. Are romantic same-sex relationships, even if they're non-sexual, okay or not? And, and we got surprisingly people who are very confused about this and think that, well, as long as they're not having sex, as long as it's not sexual or erotic, then that relationship is good. It's just striking to watch this um, shift. And again, pastors and churches and conservative uh, parents who grew up without these battles or issues, you know, were at a loss. Right. And, and that's where I think what you're trying to do is is important because, you know, we have, we have other men and women fighting this on different fronts, whether it's policy, whether it's campus reform, this, that, or the other. But your heart really is equipping the believer, talking to that man or woman who's individually struggling, asking questions, mm -hmm. uh, maybe helping a mom or dad with a son or daughter who's, you know, investigating or con concerned about his or her identity. Yeah. I get asked this by believers and say, you know, kind of expect that my ministry uh, would be directly going to the gay community and reaching out and encouraging uh, maybe other groups to form whether it's parachurch organizations or, um, uh, you know, official groups at a, at a local church to go in as a group to reach out to the gay community. And, and the reason why I don't think that's effective is because I've been there in the gay community and I know that, and this was 20 years ago, and 20 years ago, we're, we're in a different world now uh, where there is no... Um, again, we, we live in this mob mentality and I don't see that being, as being effective. And that's why, you know, many of the, some of the parachurch organizations now that are trying to do that, reach out to the gay community and trying to be a bridge, they'll say, or, 
um, you know, trying to change your posture and posture shift. Um, I honestly do not see that being effective at all because the only way you can do that is by, um, you know, giving in on your theology. And um, so I think it's most effective for us just as individuals, just we're going old school. You know, this is the way that they did it in the very beginning, one-on-one relationships, one-on-one evangelism. I was on a, a different podcast in, in recent days and um, the interviewer and I were having a bit of a debate about this quote, engaging the culture, close mm. quote. And I said, when, when did we adopt this language in Christianity that we need to engage fill in the blank? Mm. You know, of course it started out with, you know, the gay culture mm. or, you know, whatever I said, are we going to engage pedophilia? Mm. Are we going to engage a crack dealer community? Are we going to engage, yep. you know, it's just, it becomes nonsense. Yeah. And my conclusion, of course, I have a small worldview from the churches I've served, mm-hmm. but my conclusion is it's a lot safer from a leadership standpoint to say we need to engage X mm-hmm. than to individually be involved with neighbors and friends mm-hmm. because then it's somebody else's problem. Mm-hmm. We need to engage. Right. And then that mean, oh, okay, you, you form a Christian organization, like you mentioned, a parachurch group that focuses mm-hmm. on that. And you and I know what that's going to be like the minute you start exactly. you know, having those kind of assemblies. Yeah. You're going to have a ragtag group of people, mm-hmm. the far right and the far left, all point. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to be one more uh, debate that goes nowhere mm-hmm. rather than in- encouraging, you know, uh, your mutual friend and mine, Rosaria Butterfield. You know, what what she's, you know, you know, really encouraging people to do is open your yeah. home. Have your neighbors yeah. over, have your friends over, get to know people, be hospitable, just hear their story, love them, talk to them, earn the right to, uh, you know, bring up this subject right. at some point. And it, that just seems, well, on the one sense, it's too easy, <laughs> yeah. but it's easier to say something like we need to organize and engage a culture mm-hmm. because that becomes somebody else's problem yeah. as opposed to saying, why don't you, with the sphere of influence you have, friends, neighbors, uh, you know, and, and reach out to them and say, let's, let's grab a coffee. Let's grab a lunch. Let's cook a meal. You bring a salad. I'll, I'll grill some burgers and, and build that relational construct to earn the right. We used to say mm-hmm. to talk about Christ. exactly it, it kind of, um, what am I, what am I missing? You're not, you got, you hit the nail right on the head. Dr. Easley. And it, you know, by, by giving the impression that, Oh, we need to engage, you know, this issue and, and that issue, and we need to form this group to do that. You know what? That gives the impression to our congregations and our, our laity is that we give this impression that we need experts. So in other words, to engage this or to do this parachurch, we have to have experts and you need to be, uh, you need to be in this group and training them to do this. Not to say that we should be informed and, and to, uh, to, you know, gain more knowledge about other people groups and, and other issues. But really, it comes down to, you know, evangelism does not require you to be an expert in everything or even in many things. It, it just requires you to love Jesus, to understand your own faith, be able to articulate why you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to understand your own sinfulness and your own need for Christ. And if you can, if you understand that and are able to articulate that and be able to build friendships with people, you, you're, you're an evangelist. You can be an evangelist. And, and what, what we want to do in our ministry with my, my, me and my parents 
is to no longer give people the impression that uh, you can't on your own simply go across the street to an unbelieving friend. And, and I don't even have to bring up this one issue. It doesn't even have to be a gay neighbor. It can be anyone who doesn't know Christ and just start with basic friendship relationship at like our good friend Rosario talks about basic hospitality bringing, and you don't have to open up your whole home. You could just bring home over a, you know, a, a plate of cookies or whatever it is. Um, and build friendship that way. You don't have to focus upon the hairy issues that you know you're going to argue about, but just talk about who is God. I think that's the best place to start. They might want to talk about, do you think this is sin? Sometimes, you know, there, there's a couple ways that I, w- I would answer that. If someone kind of getting in that argumentative mode, I would say, you know, I value getting you more, uh, getting to know you more as a friend than debating all the time. And can we focus on our similarities and tolerate our differences? Or I could even say, if it's someone that I know a little bit better, maybe I've had a few get, you know, interactions with them, I would just jokingly say, um, man, you don't even believe in God. Why does it matter what God thinks? So let's first talk about God before we talk about what he thinks. Because <laughs> really, that's the, the first thing we need to do. If you don't even believe in God, let's not talk about his morals uh, and talk about the existence of God, the importance of uh, Christ and our own brokenness. Just very basic. Um, come back to the basics of, of, of talking about the gospel and truth. And, and you and I are on the same page on that. Let's go to... Uh... And I'm not going to use agency or group names, but the approach of, you know, going after mm-hmm. policy, the approach of the uh, statements, uh, you know, the approach of um, you know, going on record and, and being pretty bulldogmatic. You and I would agree with what mm-hmm. they're saying. And, of course, how they're saying it could be debated endlessly. But I'm asking, is it, it does it have an effectiveness in the sense that, you know, fast forward, uh, when you have children and grandchildren and they go to a school where the curriculum is, it's not optional mm. anymore. Uh, sexual education is not optional anymore. And they're going to teach a LGBTQAI fill in the blank, whatever's coming mm-hmm. next. Um, if you're a, a CIS sexuality, that's a whole different ball game. And, and so there's the fear of a parent, grandparent saying, how do I let my grandchildren grow up in this world? I don't want to keep them mm-hmm. in a bubble um but boy society's out to get mm. them and so we have christian friends that get revved up and amped up and raise money and have causes mm. and try to fight policy and become right. officials and we're not right. against that but but i'm caught in the middle of that as the average person who's uh, you know middle america trying to raise a family trying to love god mm-hmm. trying to go to church trying to pay my mm-hmm. bills i see this happening around me and i go christopher help me what yeah. do i do because I, I get those organizations trying to fight the policy, but you and I see the collateral. I mean, you know, good men cannot right. do nothing. Yep. But at the same time, uh, we're talking about, you know, being a Christian in our sphere of influence. Yeah. And this is the beautiful gospel tension uh, of, of Jesus that, you know, he's perfectly God, perfectly man. Um, and he came full of grace and full of truth. So it's, it's this tendency that we just gravitate easily toward one at the expense of the other. So I think there is importance in being engaged in our culture, in our uh, governance, 
and what's going on in in courts and um, in the legislature. Uh, just we can't lose sight of that and turn that into a fight of us versus them. Uh, we we need to be involved, especially like in our public public school boards. Uh, what's going on there? I think we've uh, distanced ourselves from that. Well, I, I would say maybe in the seventies, eighties, nineties, there maybe wasn't a lot of involvement, and now we're we're really behind the eight ball and trying to catch up and finding it. It might not even you know it's very very hard to do that. But I think we need to be very careful as we are getting involved in those things to not view this as an us versus them. It, 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 I think it's one thing to be uh, addressing the topic and the issues, but being very, very careful to separate it from people. Honestly, I mean, I, I was not an innocent bystander, but the result was I was fooled by the enemy. Satan is really the one that, you know, we, we talk about, oftentimes you hear people talk about the gay agenda, the gay community, they're pushing this gay agenda. And, and that's definitely what it looks like. But to be honest, I never heard this phrase gay agenda until I became a Christian. I didn't, this was not my, you know, incipient plan to pollute the minds of our kids. I simply was gay. Of course, I, as we talked about, this identity was wrong. But, but, but still, that's what I really truly thought because the world kept telling me this. And I wanted to help people understand who I was. And that's not a bad thing in, in my mind. That's, that, that's why when we see people in the gay community trying to, as we say, you know, push this agenda in schools, I'm against it. 100%. However, I understand. And so I'm able to be against the policy and the topic, but really my heart breaks because these are people who are blinded and they can only see through their eyes being opened by the gospel. And so that's why, if anything, as we go forward and, and you know, address these issues going on in our public schools and in, in the government, uh, I feel like we must always lift the gospel as a reminder, you know, stick it on your forehead, put it on your, you know, driver, your car dashboard, put it on your bathroom mirror, you know, it's gospel first, Jesus first above everything. And I think when we do that, that will help us to have that really sweet gospel centered uh, balance uh, that we need to have. Give me uh, two or three things that a parent needs to be aware of when their son or daughter decides that their identity is something different than the way they were born? Well, first of all, I think uh, before I, I say anything, I, I want to kind of dispel a, dispel a myth that we often hear, especially among Christians, is that um, you know your, your son or daughter who has same-sex attractions or now identifies as gay or lesbian is that way because of something you did or didn't do. Not to say that that could have, very well could have had an influence, but the core issue of any sin struggle is sin, our sin nature. Uh, you could have been a perfect parent and your children are still sinners. So I tell a lot of parents, it's not your fault because I don't want there to be any more undue guilt. So two things that I would say when they share, I don't know any Christian parent where their parents, you know, where the kids will share this and that it's going to be uh you know, maybe big surprise, and it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, do all you can to not freak out. One of the first things that I would say out of my mouth is thank you. 
thank you for telling me because we want as a parent, I'm not a parent, but mm. we want our kids to whenever they have an issue to come to us, right? I mean, that's what we want, but that's not always the case, but that's definitely what we want. Um, so thank them to just put them at ease because they're probably expecting you to either say, you know, this is sin or maybe to, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you know, which is like, oh, hallelujah, you're gay, you know, which is, of, co- of course, not biblical either. But thank them that they trusted you and tell them, I love you no matter what. The next thing is be careful. Don't follow that up with a but. <laughs> because when we do that, that but just erased everything that you just said. Say what you're going to say, that but for another day. I'm, I'm not saying don't say that. Even though I that most kids already know what's going to follow that but you know but i don't agree but i think this is sin i bet they already know that but mm-hmm. if we say that at that moment that but just erase what you said before so i would just say i love you no matter what save it for another day i would also ask them well first of all listen ask open any questions tell me more uh and then another really i think the most important open ended question that you can ask is Tell me how your faith fits into this. And what we want to hear is hopefully to hear them say that this is what I'm experiencing. This is my struggle, but my faith is more important because that's what it comes down to. These kids, they have to choose between their faith or their sexuality. People try to say, yeah, I can have both, but you can't. It's either going to be one over the other. Uh, Not to say that we just kind of we're ignoring or trying to eliminate or get rid of our sexuality, that that is going to be part of our experience for many of our days. But what's more important to us, what's going to be the guide? Are we going to interpret our faith through the lens of our sexuality, or are we going to interpret our sexuality through the lens of our faith? And hopefully it will be that second one. Okay, so uh, we don't take full blame uh, for their struggles. Two, we don't overreact. Three. Yeah, I would say, well, it's important to remind them, and, and this could be very key, that their identity needs to be in Christ. It comes back, I guess, full circle to what where we started. And, and I, I don't want to treat this like I'm, I'm, I'm beating a dead horse, but um, I think we kind of do because it has become so ingrained. Michael, I don't know any other sin issue that we have so closely linked with personhood. None. It's, it's not. Uh, there's some that might be similar, but not to this extent where it really has become ingrained. For example, um, you know, I, I know people who uh, a statement that was made by you know a, a Christian school that sex. This is one of their representatives, or they said sex has to do with identity and your gender and who you are. This was just a few weeks ago, and if we begin with sexuality is who you are, you're going to automatically end up in a place where it says, well, then why is it wrong for me to be who I am? Why is it wrong for me to, even now with many of these conferences that are out there, you know, um, empowering LGBTQ plus Christian, you know what that's grounded in, Michael? That's grounded in this wrong understanding of who we are because if you listen to many of the voices that are that are being revoiced they are talking about victimhood the more victim statuses you can keep on yourself somehow according to the world you have more authority it's not it's not you're not basing 
uh, authority based upon truth, whether someone is logical and whether someone is seeking truth. But now truth is based solely upon how many victim statuses you can heap on. And so as, as being identifying as a gay celibate Christian or a gay Christian, you've just heaped on a couple identities and uh, you now have, and, and, and in essence, we have to kind of educate others about our victim status to help them understand. I just think that's incorrect. So that's why helping our kids understand, yes, this is a reality that you're experiencing now, and it can seem very intense, just as any sin struggle is very intense, but make sure that this is not who you are. One of my uh, broken records has been uh, maturity is when you quit blaming your past, you own your present, and you plan your future. You know, the, the quit blaming your past can be, you know, not minimizing that people were abused, were mm. deeply hurt, wounded, that there's mm. scars there. But the, the turning point is you stop blaming your past. You, you've got to turn the page and say, I will no longer be identified by what happened to me, the injustice, the abuse, the perpetrators. Right. Not excusing that, but I'm not going to be. An, and then the key point is mm. owning my present. This Amen. is where I am today. This is who I am today, what I'm wrestling with. And then I think maturity is, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow? How am mm. I going to play in the future? And even at 61, <laughs> I struggle with this because we can all revert into, you know, this mm. is what happened to me. Mm. You know, I'm blaming my past. Well, you don't know my situation. I'm mm. not owning my future. Well, you can plan, you can, you can plan your future, Michael. You can own your present plan. Anyway, uh, let's change gears finally and, and, and land this, uh, help the man or woman who might be listening to you and me, who is, you know, entangled, who's concerned. Maybe there's a little bit of, you know, twinge in their heart going, you know, I disagree with you and, and, and Michael wholeheartedly, but there's something stirring in that man or woman or however they choose to identify themselves. What would you say to them? I would say, you know, if Jesus Christ is of importance to you, if, if he is someone that you believe in, uh, if, he, if it isn't, I would consider him uh, and consider the truths of who he was. Um, but if that's, you know, because sometimes people are on the fence. Well, I'm Christian, but I'm, I'm gay. This is who I am. Um, I, I want us to heed carefully uh, the words that we hear from Jesus, that, that we actually uh here in, in all three three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus was talking to his disciples and he says he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, Luke says, mm. and follow me. That's that's such a high radical calling. And and we we hear that and we think, Oh, well that's for like pastors, that's for like Doctor Easley, that's for you know let me interrupt you. Let's just say, deny yourself. Oh, my word. <laughs> right. No, you need to embrace who you are. That's, that's, that's the, you know, that's the battle cry of our day today. Embrace who you are. Um, and yet, boy, Jesus is saying the exact opposite. No, deny who you are. Uh, you know, I think people ask, you know, what, what would your old friends think about you? And I said, I think they think I'm fooling myself, that I'm denying myself. And the truth of the matter is I am denying myself every single day. And, and it's, 
people then think, oh, well, that is such an awful, sadistic way to live as a Christian. No, because it's when we deny ourselves, that's when we can really thrive in Christ. That's the only way that Christ can live in us. I mean, this what Jesus says, you know, here in these Gospels, deny yourself, pick up your cross, that really dovetails exactly with what Paul was saying in Galatians 2.20. Um, you know, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. If, if you're crucified, you're dead. <laughs> there's, there's no, you know, I, I, you know, I can be crucified and still live, like the spoon theory. That's that's all just ridiculous. You're dead, and that's the only way that Christ can live in us. And when we do that, that's when the joy comes. I, I love what our, our friend Rosario says: the gospel is costly, but it's worth it. It's so true because there's nothing else as as difficult, as challenging as it is. I'm not going to sugarcoat. Following Jesus is not easy, but there is so much more joy and hope that I can have. Why? Because in the past, my joy was so bound up in what in my day to day. If if something good happened to me now, I'm happy. If something bad happened to me now, I'm I'm not happy. But now things can come my way, good or bad. And I know, you know what? I know how the story is going to end. I know what, that I have a redeemer. I know that I have a person on my side and he's my rock. And so that's where the joy and hope comes from, that it's going to be hard, but following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, we're following the wrong Jesus. I can't, it's not original with me, but someone said the gospel of Christ may hurt you but it was never meant to harm you. Wow, that's good. It may hurt to realize I'm a sinner. It may hurt to realize uh, I've been deceived. It may hurt to be real, realize that my quote-unquote friends have encouraged me down the wrong path. Mm. But Christ isn't there to harm. He's there to heal. He's there to redeem. And, and, and I guess, you know, for, for you and me to give folks the hope, uh, no matter what I'm you know, tempted by, mm. my desires, my if I want to call it orientation, whatever language I want to, you know, add on to this, this pull, uh, Christ has a different plan. It's not of this world. We're all, you know, as I said before, the, the ground at Calvary is level. Amen. And none are righteous. No, not one. Uh, you're not better than me, and I'm not better than Dr. Yuan. Hmm. We're, we're both sinners who serve hell. And it might hurt to realize that, but it won't harm us. That you know the the long the long term is forgiveness, uh, a joy that is different. It's otherworldly, and uh, and that is at core a faith, a statement of faith that I'm going to trust Him, even though I don't feel a certain way, even though I may not think a certain way. I'm going to step out in faith and put my trust in Christ and Christ alone Amen. for that salvation, and then I'm going to trust His Spirit to change me Amen. and uh, transform me into something that I am not. Amen. Dr. Christopher Yuan, always a delight to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much, Michael. God bless you. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.